definition, an act where a doctor intentionally ends the life of a person by the administration of drugs at that person's voluntary and competent request for reasons of compassion. I think we need to think that most people who are pushing for euthanasia do it for compassionate reasons. Um, I'll leave it at that. I'll let you decide. <laughs> um, we've also heard the term physician-assisted suicide. Um, so this is basically where the patient takes the medication or whatever they do themselves, but the physician provides the means to do it. So the provision of a help by a doctor to a competent patient who has formed a desire to end his or her life. The situation where a doctor intentionally helps a person to commit suicide by providing drugs for self-administration at that person's voluntary and competent request. But ethically and morally, it's really not distinguishable from euthanasia as it's a deliberate act um, with the express intention of ending life. <clears throat> Who's heard of like, terminal sedation, palliative sedation, treatment, you know, intensified treatment of pain? Anybody heard those terms? Um, so really, we see patients all the time who are experiencing suffering of all types, not just physical suffering. And I'm, I've got to be the first one to put up my hand. Palliative care cannot get rid of suffering, you know, all suffering, and certainly do a great job, but we can't get rid of all of it. And Certainly, at some point, sedation is needed to make that person comfortable, but it's never done with the intention of hastening life. So normally, if somebody's not eating and drinking, it, it's not going to hasten death, or hasten sort of death is what I said. Um, so we use it for the management of severe and refractory symptoms in the last days of life, and it may be appropriate. Then there's the doctrine of double effect, and this is... I suppose a bit of an ethical thing. Can this treatment shorten life? Um, it might. Um, my sense is I've never given it and it hasn't shortened life because usually we only introduce it when somebody's not eating and drinking anyway. Um, the question is, could it? And there's certainly been some evidence that if you give doses of opiates and sedatives, they don't actually shorten your life. I mean, if you gave somebody who's never been exposed a massive dose, it will. But generally, patients in a palliative care unit, the ones who are on higher doses, actually survive longer. Um, but if the intention is to hasten death, then that's the equivalent of euthanasia. <coughs> then there's also the terms of withholding <coughs> or withdrawing treatment. Um, we tend to use the term about, you know, letting nate, the natural process of dying to occur and providing artificial feeding or fluids is a medical treatment. It's artificially keeping someone alive. So withdrawing that treatment is not euthanasia. It's letting nature take its course. However, having said that, if that treatment is started, it's often much harder to have the discussion then to say, should we stop it? And it's much more important to have that discussion before you start the treatment to say, are we going to do this for 48 hours if there's no improvement, or is this actually adding to somebody's comfort? And generally, it doesn't add comfort, but it can buy some time. And again, that's the balance between have you got quality, you know, or if you're suffering, why should we extend that suffering? So let's, you know, let the dying process happen. 
<coughs> this slippery slope. So this is sort of a, oops, oh, I see, thank you. Um, the, I guess the argument against euthanasia is that when it's introduced and legalized for a very narrow population and reasons, then as soon as that happens, then there's bids to increase who can um, have euthanasia, who can give it, how it's done. Um, so, you know, initially it's always terminally ill, but then it's people who aren't terminally ill. It can be somebody who has unbearable suffering or just then tired of life, moves from adults to children, which has happened in some places in, in the world. Um, start including patients with dementia or mental illness, um, and then even the more vulnerable patients with disabilities. Um, and like I said, it's happened in most jurisdictions where it's been legalized. And then there's the euphemism, so <clears throat> death with dignity, made, which is what it's called in Canada, so it's medical assistance in dying, uh, the peaceful alternatives, and it's basically attempts to Prettify the language, as Robert Twycross has said. Um, so just be aware, you know, you really come under those two categories of euthanasia and suicide and, you know, decide where they go. Um, so briefly, um, some arguments for euthanasia and then against. Um, as I said before, compassionate response to it. So, you know, people see people suffering and their response is, we, we don't want to see people to suffer like that. So how do we, you know, meet that need? Um, the expression of autonomy. So, you know, especially in our Western world, the individual has become very important. The need to be able to make decisions, to have the ability or control over life and death has become very important. And so that's also come up because it's in a time where medical treatment for, you know, also physical but psychological and spiritual suffering is the best it's ever been. And yet the drive for euthanasia is increasing in the Western world. The majority of the public are in favor, but again, that's how do you ask the question? I mean, most people are in favor of having a choice, but when you ask them would they pursue it, they say no. So it's, again, how do you ask the question? Legalization will reduce suicide rates, uh, meaning then people have access to euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide. But, again, that hasn't been the case. It's actually increased because it normalizes suicide and killing yourself. Um, they say there's no risk to vulnerable patients and that there's the safeguards, you know, the laws and the regulations will will uh, protect the vulnerable. Um, but they cannot guarantee protection from sort of internal and external, I suppose, pressures. So there's always pressure, you know, it can be financial pressures, but feeling like you're a burden, you know, all that goes on and on. I'll explain that a little bit more. Um, and then there becomes, um, they say there's no moral difference between killing someone or letting them die. And they say there's no such thing as the slippery slope. Arguments against, so the inherent value of human life. Um, the other thing to think about, suffering is not just the physical thing. And so... Actually, more often, it's an existential one influenced by the psychological, social, and spiritual factors. 
Um, I've written in brackets, I've written dying heel. This is a term that Balfour Mount, who is the, I suppose the father, grandfather of the term palliative care. He's an, uh, I was actually a urological surgeon who became a palliative care physician. And he talks about the journey through the dying process that you can actually become healed. So you can heal relationships. You can heal some of your psychological, you know, so you can actually die healed. And so part of that journey, I think, is really important from us in palliative care is how do we help people to to heal in that process? It's an antithesis to medicine and some of you know some of the oaths we take and you know that we do no harm, do good, just great. Um, argument against is saying that it's unnecessary if there's access to good palliative care. Um, I would like, you know, I, I like to say that it's, a, it's that clear and simple. As I said before, palliative care can't guarantee that you won't suffer. So people will still say, well, I'm still suffering. So I'm not sure that's, um, an absolute argument. The argument we have is basically is saying, if euthanasia is gonna be legalized, then everybody should have access to best palliative care. And that's not the case. So in Canada, at the moment, only 15% of the population actually have access to good quality palliative care, mainly because of distances and socioeconomic reasons. Australia, I don't think, is that much different. Um, then we talk about the negative impact. So it'll normalize killing. Um, I think the impact on families is minimized. I've also talked about medical staff, and this is, um, I think it's really traumatic for medical staff who are involved. Um, interesting factor in Canada, when they first legalized um, the maid, medical assistance in dying, they asked for a register of physicians or doctors who would be willing to provide euthanasia. And early on, they had, I think, nearly 2,000 doctors who signed up. And within two years, that number had dropped to less than half. And the main reason was that the ones who had actually administered, or you know, euthanasia were too traumatized. They said, I can't do this again. So I think it's easy to think about it, but when you're actually involved, and I don't, you know, it's probably a mental thing. I think there's a spiritual thing as well. It's it's very traumatic. Um, there's the danger of abuse, which I mentioned before. So, again, internal pressure is a bit like if somebody really feels that they're a burden on their family, they don't want to be that burden, then they'll, you know, say, well, just kill me. Um External pressures. There might be financial issues. You know, if, if you're 85 years old and you've got children who are really struggling financially, you're suffering. The sooner I die, the sooner they get my property. There might even be subtle pressure from family. As one of my colleagues often says, um, this is more on the humor side, is where there's a will, there's a family. Uh, um, the... If you look at the Dutch experience, a significant proportion of the people who undergo euthanasia are done so without their consent or without their knowledge. So this is the people who are in nursing homes, who have dementia, 
and yeah, so that does happen, and I think we can ignore the finances, and I've got a quote coming up, I think, on the next page about, you know, basically it's cheaper to kill someone than to look after them. Um, and then autonomy is not an absolute, even though, you know, they talk about autonomy and the importance of the individual, but if we look at, we also live in a society, so we have a responsibility for each other, so that's the justice one, um, and also the do no harm and do good. So autonomy doesn't necessarily trump everything else. We have to look at society in general. Um, now this is... Um, from Derek Humphrey, who's the co-founder of three of the euthanasia organize, international euthanasia organizations, Hemlock Society, Final Exit Network, and Compassion and Choices. And he's quoted as saying, in the final analysis, economics, not the quest for broadened individual liberties or increased autonomy, will drive assisted suicide to the plateau of acceptable practice. Um, and then patients in Oregon are being told that the Oregon Health Plan will not pay for treatment of their underlying condition, although it will pay for assisted suicide. Um, another argument, I don't know if anybody's heard, there was a person who followed up survivors who attempted suicide from the Golden Gate Bridge. There's been over 300, I think there was something around 20 survivors. And I think the 19 he was able to speak to um, every one of them said, as soon as I jumped, I regretted it. So it's something to think about as well. Um, it's the brief history. So euthanasia has been around, I mean, and all sorts of other murder and sacrifice and all this. But in ancient Greece and Rome, the use of hemlock was used to hasten death. It was supported by a couple of our great philosophers, Plato and Socrates. However, it was not supported by Hippocrates. So, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, grandfather of medicine. Um, in the early modern period, in the 17th century, uh, Francis Bacon uh, wrote a book, Euthanasia Medica, and he talked about interior and exterior euthanasia. So interior is basically sort of spiritual, theological care, preparing the soul for death. And exterior is really the physical or medical. And the intention was to make the end of life easier and pain-free and in exceptional circumstances by hastening death. And we call that physical or medical care. Then the contemporary euthanasia debate started increasing in the 1800s. Morphine um, was starting to be used for pain relief and chloroform, the first anesthetic agent, and they were beginning to rec recommend it for easing the pains of death, and then soon after rec being recommended for hastening death when suffering intolerable. Even though it wasn't legal, I'm sure it was being practiced, probably not documented. Um, turn of the century was the um, creation of the Euthanasia Society of America. In the 30s, you had the Voluntary Euthanasia Legislation Society. Um, in the 40s, the Nazis had a euthanasia program, um, which was actually a genocide that killed adults and children with disabilities, mental and physical, religious beliefs, and discordant values. 
modern day. Um, euthanasia is now legal in the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg. Physician-assisted suicide is now possible under legal guidelines in Canada, Switzerland, five U.S. states, and Victoria. So this is just a brief rundown of what's you know happening in the Netherlands or what has happened and is happening. So the f formalized guidelines were drafted in 1990 for euthanasia. It was legalized in 2002. 2012, they created mobile um, life-ending clinics, so teams go to people's homes and basically euthanize them. Um, now, I've written E plus PAS plus no request, so that's euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide, and any deaths where there was no request or no consent given. Early on, in, after it had been legalized, it was around 2.7% of all deaths, and it's gone up to nearly 5%. So in terms of percentages, to give you an idea, um, in Australia... On average, there's probably about 6,000 deaths per million population a year. And we've got 20,000 people. So you're talking 120,000 deaths a year in Australia. If you take even 1%, um, you're talking 1,200 a year. If you go up to 5%, you, you know, you're talking 6,000 deaths by euthanasia in Australia alone. Um, in Netherlands, it now includes anybody, can include anybody over 11 years, so 12, 13, 14-year-olds. It includes non-terminal illness, psychosocial suffering, dementia, psychiatric illness. Advanced care directives, that's um, interesting. So somebody who might be competent at one point can now write down, when I am no longer competent, please euthanize me, which is not legal in Victoria, but you know, that's now become something. So, yeah, you can ask for it in advance to be euthanized. And nurses are also giving the, administering the medications. Suicide rates continue to rise. And euthanasia, only 33% is due to physical symptoms. The majority due to mental, emotional, and psychological symptoms. What's happening in Belgium, and you'll get the pattern, is essentially the same. Um, 2002 euthanasia legalized, 2014 legalized for children, 0.2% of deaths in 2003, now 1.7 in 2013. If you take one section of Belgium, the Flanders, it's nearly 5%. And it's also now mandatory that it actually occurs in the palliative care units. So palliative care teams are providing euthanasia in the units. What's happening in Switzerland? Um, 1937, assisted suicide uh, was not legal if it was for unselfish motivation. Um, it's home to Dignitas International and Exit. Um, it's performed by volunteers, not doctors, but doctors have to be part of the assessment process, and it's risen from 1% to 2.2% of all deaths. In Oregon, um, 1994, physician-assisted suicide uh, was legalized, called Dying with Dignity Act. It's gone from 0.2% to 0.4% or to 0.6%. Um, and then the reasons given on, you know, with the assessment was loss of autonomy, functional loss, um, loss of dignity. Um, 
pain or fear of pain um, only came sixth at 26%, so mainly physical symptoms. And again, suicide rates continue to rise. What happened in the Northern Territories, as you know, um, in 1995, there was the Rights of the Terminally Ill Act. Um, the euthanasia became legalized in July 1996. Um, it was probably the first jurisdiction, if you look at all the other dates in the world. Um, seven requests, two died before anything went ahead. Um, one never got there and four were euthanized and then it was um, deemed, um, well, not supported by the federal government because it's a territory. And so that program was closed down again. What's happening in Canada? Um, so, physician-assisted suicide ban was lifted in 2015, then MAID was legislated. Um, if you look at early stages, 0.4%, it's gone up to 1.5%, which is 2,700 people in 2017. Uh, only 15% of the population have access to quality palliative care. Palliative care services are being pressured to provide MAID. And there's a suggestion that they're being, that funding may be withheld if they don't. Um, there's immediately calls have already started to, to expand who can be euthanized. Um, calls to prohibit conscientious objections so doctors may not be able to refuse to be part of that. Um, and euthanasia and physician assisted suicide has now been deemed part of medical care. Um, and then this asterisk is what I spoke about before, how less doctors now want to be involved. Uh, what's happening in Victoria, so they have the voluntary assisted dying, uh, which became legal in June this year. Um, and the first death was in the middle of July. Now, I've got some, I can read the details, but that's probably just going to be boring. You can get it online, but it's a nice sort of summary. You can easily get that online of what's involved, you know, the legalities, the guidelines, and it's very fairly simple and straightforward. But, again, early stages, watch this space. It will be expanded if, any, if the past is, you know, experiences uh, anything to go on. Um, I'm going to talk about palliative care briefly, um, sort of define it. Um, so this is the World Health Organization and Palliative Care Australia definition. So palliative care is an approach that improves the quality of life of patients and their families facing the problems associated with life-threatening illness through the prevention and relief of suffering by means of early identification, impeccable assessment and treatment of pain and other problems, physical, psychosocial, and spiritual. Palliative care also it provides relief from pain and other distressing symptoms, affirms life, and regards dying as a normal process. Um, we can debate that as Christians, but I would say as part of, we all, at the moment, living in the world we do in, that is part of the normal process. Um, it tends neither to hasten nor postpone death. Integrates the psychological and spiritual aspects of patient care and offers a support system to help patients live as actively as possible until death. Um, if palliative care is not freely available to all, then choosing euthanasia is not a true free choice um, because you may choose it 
because of your suffering and not having access to treatment that might actually resolve the suffering and to a point where you can still go to, go on living. Society's response to suffering should be to address that suffering with better medical services, mental health, and support and palliative care that is available to all, not suicide. Now, I've written Principle of Non-Abandonment. I'll talk about that a bit more too, but <clears throat> so one of the things that I, I think in terms of, you know, as the palliative care team, we have to start thinking about if euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide becomes legalized in New South Wales, how do we respond as a service? Because most of the people who will ask for it will come under our care at some point in time. Um, as a service, without getting the Christian aspect involved, I think we need to support those patients no matter what their decisions are. That's a personal decision. I'm not forcing that on anybody on the team, but most of our patients, probably every one of them, probably every one of your family do things you don't agree with, but you don't abandon them. And so we will continue to walk with them, provide the best palliative care, relieve the suffering as much as we can, you know, even if it means going wherever they're going to be euthanized, we need to not abandon them. That's, you know, if we did that, then it certainly wouldn't be loving them. Um, What is suffering? So suffering comes up a lot because it seems that the requests for euthanasia and hastening death are because of suffering. And I've sort of mentioned the the realms of it. The, you know, there's the physical, there's the um, psychological, um, social, and um, existential. And I'll just give an example. To, um, today I saw a patient in one of the hospitals, and they were very peacefully asleep. They were on one of these sedating infusions. They weren't eating and drinking. They were suffering with agitation. When I went in, the patient was very peaceful, lying in bed. And there was two daughters, and one of the daughters, you know, said the usual thing. Um, you wouldn't let a dog go through this. And so there's obviously a lot of suffering on the part of the daughter watching her mother slowly deteriorate. Um but what did I do in that situation? Well, I just listened and I talked about what we're doing and it was really more, I suppose, a a cry of the grief of losing your mum. She was actually very peaceful. And it's always, don't, you know, when somebody asks for euthanasia, ask why, what's going on for you? Let's, you know, find out what's going on and they just needed to be listened to in that situation. Um, it's not going to make it any easier for them. They're still going to suffer. But I think they know that you're with them in it. I think it's really important. Um, this is just one model of suffering. And this is um, So you can talk about suffering and the input from all of these different things. And often if we talk about attention to one area of suffering, it improves all of suffering. So I've written two cases. Have we still got a bit of time? Is that all right if I talk a bit more? So this is a a case that I actually wasn't involved in, but my colleague um, a couple of years, or about, I think about eight years ago, 
There's a young man in his early 30s was um, dying of cancer, and he had metastatic disease, and he had severe pain due to the disease in his back, and we just couldn't get on top. We were, you know, we were giving him, you know, huge doses of opiates and just not touching the pain. So my colleague decided to, said, you know, there's something else going on. Sat down with the patient and said, "Tell me your story. What's going on?" And it turns out that um, he'd only been married for two and a half years, had two children under two, um, had recently bought a house, mortgage, and the bank. they'd received a letter a few weeks ago that the bank was going to foreclose on them. So we got the social worker involved. They talked to the bank. The bank said, fine, no payments for six months, and then talked to us again. His pain got better, and we hardly had to use any pain relief. So addressing the psychosocial and the physical, so his way of expressing his distress was through a physical symptom. But we needed to address it in a different way. Another case which isn't quite as dramatic, but it's interesting, another young man whom we were involved in, probably about 10 years ago, who actually ended up under our care for nearly a year in hospital. It was, again, a man in his uh, late 40s. Um, homeless man, had drug and alcohol history, and had a slowly progressive cancer. Um, he came into hospital and just wanted it all to end, was suffering extremely. Anyway, we started looking after him, got the pain under control. and But he had nowhere to go. He was too young to go to a nursing home, and, you know, and so, yeah, just ended up under our care. And towards the end of the year, where it then became obvious that he was dying, he started saying to the nurses, and this is unbelievable, he said, this has been the best year of my life. And so I'd... You know, you can't measure that. Um, if euthanasia had been available, he might not have had the best year of his life. Um, meaning of suffering, this is just, I, I'm not here to tell you what it is. It's more discussion points. How do you explain or deal with suffering if your paradigm doesn't include good and evil, sin and redemption, grace and eternity? Um, it's interesting. Stephen Jenkinson is... A uh, Canadian author, an interesting man. He's also studied theology a couple of years, was a social worker, and then a bereavement coordinator for palliative care for many years. Um, he now calls himself a grief walker, so helps people walk through grief. But he is a bit controversial. He also says that palliative care doesn't allow people to properly grieve or die, which is interesting. And, but he says that our journey through suffering and dying, if we do this well, it's actually a gift to those around us and to the next generation. And he's saying that our, I suppose, um, generation, our society, denies the fact that suffering occurs. We don't know how to do it anymore. And... Um, Again, you know, there's some truth to that, I think. You know, um, we aren't meant to suffer, but it happens. So how do we, how do we do that? How do we teach those around us to walk with that suffering? 
So are we denying suffering? Do we, you know, somebody said, oh, we want to go from being healthy to dead without dying. Um, and I guess we think we're in control. Um, I saw this quote yesterday at our annual memorial service for the Blue Mountains part. I was saying, this is somebody written this. I thought, oh, this is quite appropriate. So this is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, you know, who did the stages of grieving. And this is her quote of beautiful people. The most beautiful people we know are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of its depths or I'd say even through it, these persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fill them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. What what should our response be? And I think the first word, I mean, I, I could stop there. <laughs> you know, what does love mean? And we just can't judge. Um, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, I think the, the more we know how much God loves us, how great his heart is, how merciful he is, uh, you know, I'm just blown away. You know, like the prodigal son is not a story about the son. It's actually a story about the father um, and his heart. You know, Golgotha, I mean, you've got a murderer hanging there who's just murdered somebody, and yet Jesus says, I forgive you. Um, who knows Ian McCormack, the jellyfish man? Anybody heard of him? No? Okay. He got a, you can Google him. He's got a fascinating testimony. But basically, he was uh, growing up in a Christian family, but basically drugs, alcohol, surfing, was, I think, in one of the Pacific Islands, um, out on a boat, went swimming, you know, I'd been drinking. Anyway, he swam into a school of the Irukandji jellyfish and was stung multiple, multiple times. And one sting alone can kill you. So the, uh, I think there's a couple of Fijians, they sort of pulled him out of the water and he just started swelling up. And they, you know, went back to shore and basically dropped him in the ditch outside the hospital and he was basically dead. They brought him in, and I don't know, it was half an hour to an hour something later, he suddenly came to life again. And he talks about what happened during that time, um, how he experienced what he says what was hell, and it's not, for him it wasn't fire and brimstone and all this sort of thing. It was actually just nothingness, which is even scarier, I think. Um, but also that God said, I still want you to do something for me. And he was merciful, and somebody had run away. So I think God's mercy, his grace for us is so much greater than we can even comprehend. So I think it's much greater than euthanasia. Um, Non-abandonment, which I mentioned before, again, he's never abandoned us. We've got his Holy Spirit, so he's always with us no matter what we're doing. Um, and we all do things that he doesn't agree with. So I'm the first to put up my hands. So... <laughs> Um, and then, you know, we have the intrinsic value of life. We are his creation, made in his image. We're home to the Holy Spirit, his temple, so to speak. And then, as I said, God's bigger than our or anyone else's sin or actions. We live in an imperfect world, and we'll do so until Jesus' return. So how do we live with inevitable suffering? Which is, I'm just going to say that you all know that, but it's not from him. But how do we walk through that with him? Um, 
grace, the Holy Spirit, his empowering presence makes us righteous and empowered to bring his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So I suppose that's our, you know, our strength. How does that work out with us and those around us? That's for you to discuss now and in your groups. <laughs> um, just quickly some resources. Um, as I said, Megan, I, she gave me one of her presentations. I've used a couple of the quotes from her slides. Um, that last bit was from David Crabtree. He was this original senior pastor of Dayspring and now lives in America, but he's, we're still pushing him to write his book on grace, his empowering presence, but he's written a little summary. And, um, Roger Woodruff, I'll show you, you can actually get this on, online. Look, looks like this. I was given this by Douglas Bridge, who's one of our sort of fathers of palliative care in Western Australia and also a solid Christian. Um, and so is, is Roger, and he's written this book for the International Association for Hospice and Palliative Care. And um, you can buy that the PDF, you know, well, you can get the actual hard copy for $15 in the PDF. You can just access it online, but you can't copy it, so you can still read through it. And I used a fair bit of that in, in my talk as well. This was presented to the Parliament in Western Australia as well as part of, you know, palliative care sort of, I suppose, um, encouragement not to pursue euthanasia. Um, and we're down to questions. Um, I've also written some questions at the end because I was asked to maybe provide some questions for your groups, but that was just that's off the top of my head. Um, hopefully they're not too controversial, but... <laughs> Well, Alan, thank you. And uh, we have some we have some really good questions for you. So, uh, so buckle up. Um, no guarantees. <laughs> um, first thing before I want to say before I ask these questions is just I I did a, a fair bit of research on this topic before coming into this, and the overview that you've just given us in. 40 minutes is, um, is incredible. And I just wanted to thank you for what you just presented then. Um, and just, uh, like obvious care that you have in the, in the role that you have. It's quite a privilege to, to be with you and listening to you tonight. So I just want to thank you. First question that we have, um, uh, why do you think we should care about this issue as Christians? I get... I guess God's love for us, <laughs> as I've mentioned before, um, every life is important. It's precious, um, and killing is not a solution. Um, and I don't think we have the right to take a life that's been given by Him. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It just makes me sad. <laughs> I guess if you were to come into, um, you know, there's some questions around what the Bible has to say around euthanasia. I guess you could bring the sixth commandment into it, like thou shalt not murder. Um, is there things that you've wrestled with in your own work or in terms of biblical passages that you've found that have helped you come to conclusions or is it um, something that you've experienced? Um, 
I think there's always struggles, but uh, as I as you've probably noticed, uh, I'm His love and His mercy for me. You know, I can only operate out of that. So, um, if somebody does this, this, and this, I I just can't judge. I can just be there for the person. Um, I can tell a story, you know, this is, and I don't know why it happened, but I think it has to do with listening to the spirit. This is early on my career before I was even a specialist. I was an advanced trainee and we're involved with care for someone who had been a doctor for many years. Um, amazing person who also supported communities from the country he'd come from and he was dying of lung cancer. And for him, he was suffering not so much from pain, we got that under control, but it was just, he was, wasn't able to do anything anymore. He'd been such a dynamic person. Breathlessness was also an issue. And we had long, as it went over a number of weeks, he said, you know, how, how can I pursue euthanasia? How can I do this? How can I do that? And, um, you know, we had discussions. I said, well, you can look here, you can do that and all that sort of thing. In the meantime, I'm going to support you as best I can. And in in the end, it was interesting, the GP, who's also a Christian, um, didn't talk to me for a while. <laughs> I actually, I went, I went and talked to the medical oncologist who knew the patient probably better than I did because they'd been involved in his care for a couple of years with chemotherapy and radiotherapy. And I said to her, you know, how, how long do you think so-and-so has? Because that's often a prognosis thing. And she said, I think he's only got a few weeks. Which makes this sedation a lot easier because when you don't eat or drink anything, you have basically up to three weeks. So if you know somebody's got less than, you know, a few weeks, then it's actually quite easy to say, well, you know, if we treat this pain and it makes you a bit more drowsy, is that okay? And often people say, yeah, I don't mind being a bit more asleep or nothing. Um, he had stopped eating and drinking more out of Rather that he wasn't able to, he said, I'm just going to stop eating and drinking. I've had enough. So we put him on a sedating infusion. I was at his home. We started up and, you know, gave him lots of sedation. And he, one of his daughters was there who was a nurse who could give extra doses. And I got the news the next morning that he died in the early morning. But how it happened was that he, he had a huge tumor mass in his lung and it basically, um, sounds fairly graphic, exploded and he, basically vomited up a couple liters of basically did you know, pus and choked to death on it. But he was unconscious when it happened. And so he didn't suffer through that. And all I can say is the spirit prompted me to sedate this gentleman. You know, other situations I wouldn't have done it. I don't know. So, there, you know, that's a difficulty. I don't, I can't explain it, but um, yeah, so there's those things, even the, like I said this afternoon or this morning when I spoke to this this family, uh, you know, uh, I can understand the pain, you know. How do you begin to wrestle with God's healing in the terminally ill and working in a palliative care environment? It must be a challenging line to walk. It is. Um, there's, a, there's probably a number of levels to that question or answer, so... I believe in obviously healing and, you know, we've been given the authority to go and heal and I've seen healing. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, I pray before I go in. I you know, I always want the um, I'm just trying to remember her name, but the the anointing where you walk into a room and somebody's healed, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, but working in a health organization that's public health, I don't have the right to go and pray for people in a sense unless they possibly ask for it. So I can't initiate it because I have I work under an authority that doesn't believe in that. So, but that doesn't stop me from praying beforehand or when I'm going into a room, you know, or praying in tongues quietly, you know. <laughs> um, I have a funny habit where I, you know, I've ta- I often like to sit down on the bed because I'm fairly tall or kneel on the ground or something, but usually I'm standing at the end of the bed or next, and then as I'm saying goodbye, I just put my hand on somewhere like on their foot or on their arm and something, and it's sort of like I'm blessing them. If somebody gets healed, fantastic. And as, I don't know if you know Randy Clark, he says, if you don't pray, then they probably won't get healed. But you'll pray many, many times and they won't get healed. <laughs> so it's one of those things we don't understand, but we keep praying and, yeah. Um, I know you said that uh, it would take you a few days to cover all this. That's why you know I'll sit and listen for a few days to the answers that you're giving. Um, some more general questions. Uh, one of the questions we had, why do only roughly 15% of people have access to good palliative care in Australia when a large majority live in, ma- in major large city areas? Is it just for financial reasons? It's a combination of factors. So if I take, for example, the Aboriginal population who, you know, make up anywhere between 1% and 4% of the population, we would not see nearly that percentage in our care. So, the, And then there's the, um, you know, aged care facilities are so underserviced, and that's a huge part of our population. We try to visit, but there is not good quality palliative care because they don't have the levels of nursing that's needed. Um, yes, distance is a huge thing. Um, you know, the... The state government's been provided extra funding in New South Wales, you know, 100 million over a number of years to try to provide more nursing, more staff specialists, and they wanted six specialists just for rural. They can't get the people to work out there. Um, you know, and the tyranny of distance. I mean, you know, you work in the Northern Territories or Western Australia or, you know, they're, you know, seeing one person can take a day. You know, you gotta drive for six, seven hours to see them and come back. You know, it's that. So, you know, we do, you know, teleconferencing or, you know, telehealth. So, you know, that gets used, but somebody still has to go to the house. And, um, yeah, so it adds up. And then there's the vulnerable groups as well. Um, the mentally ill, as we know, they don't even have normal access to normal health and mental health. Um, people avoid the health system, you know, and they're, they're scared of it. And that's another argument against euthanasia is that if we start providing euthanasia in hospitals, the vulnerable say, well, am I going to get killed against my will in the hospital? Um, A more personal question. Um, uh, The question is, I have a family member with advanced Alzheimer's. As a family, we agreed to introduce a do not resuscitate order. Where does do not resuscitate stop and the big E start? So, again, this is um, where we talked about letting nature take its course and providing comfort care in that process. Um, 
uh, I'm going to take a slight sidetrack. I can't imagine what it would be like looking after someone who's got dementia because it's, in a sense, it's not them anymore. And watching them suffer and you suffer, I, I can't imagine it. When you're suffering, when you're in pain, um, you, you think about these things, but I think the euthanasia is an act, you know, it's, it's an active act of killing someone. Um, whereas, um, you know, the, the palliative care providing that comfort, even if it's sedation, you're not hastening life, you're, you're providing comfort, but, the question of euthanasia and, and hastening death will always come up when there's severe suffering. Uh, but I, I just, personally, I don't think it gives us the right to kill someone. I guess in terms of the general like experience and the statistics that you were talking about where euthanasia or physician-assisted dying has been implemented in other countries, so Belgium, Switzerland, um, it seems like that slippery slope argument, there's a lot of things that kind of from what you're sharing is kind of almost cementing while people are denying that slippery slope, you know, doesn't mm. necessarily occur. It seems like there is a lot of evidence starting to mm. emerge that that may well in fact mm. be the case. Um, is that something that you think, like, it doesn't seem to be hastening any implementation of it, though. It still continues to be implemented in different con- different countries, different states. Do you feel that that's something that, needs to be part of the conversation for New South Wales and if that's going forward in legislation? Oh, definitely. So um, there was eight palliative care doctors who had a, um, I don't know, I guess got together in Parliament just before this went to to the vote in the, in the lower house. And unfortunately, it was like a, you know, it was one of these sort of, um, where you, you get the media scrum and all this. And unfortunately, it was on the same day that, um, same sex marriage was approved. So there was nobody there. But I got a picture of us sitting there. But anyway, but all of us sort of put forth, you know, information arguments against why this, you know, against euthanasia or physician assisted dying. Um, and certainly that's, one of the things that comes up. I mean, you know, one of the arguments too when we talk about access as a previous question is, you know, the Governor General, um, no, Auditor General of New South Wales put out a report two years ago now about palliative care in New South Wales. And the big thing that came out is the poor coordination of the services and, you know, the lack of those services. So even the state government knows that palliative care is not well coordinated and run um you know so it's another you know argument that that's there that we can do a lot better on the topic of like the dutch experience um and looking at the countries who have legalized euthanasia uh, the question we have here is what has been the effect on countries that have legalized euthanasia specifically around young people uh, people with disability etc so i know you mentioned some of that is are you able to speak more into that um, I'm going to say no, because I don't know what the impact has been on, let's say, the youth or what their thinking is. I mean, all I can say is that, you know, once you introduce physician-assisted dying, euthanasia, you know, hastening death, it starts to become more normalized and acceptable. And so I think more people start to think about it and, you know, and, you know, 
and you know men it was i didn't talk about mental health and depression in people who have life limiting illnesses but that level can be you know up to 60 70% you know degree of depression that will impact your ability i think you know to think about this i suppose rationally and when you're depressed you want things to end um and if you looked at some of those slides the reasons for requesting and giving euthanasia is tired of life being the psychiatric illness depression um so i think you know if there's if it's become permitted it's going to happen more it's not going to you know suddenly stop and that's it become more acceptable um one of the questions that came in have you seen many people come to faith as they face death um not in the sense that i've personally been there you know walked them through that i think what happens for many people is that i mean we still live in a post christian christian society so many many people come back i suppose start thinking about that surprising how many people say i know where i'm going um it's interesting one of our nurses who's now retired was a born evangelist and she was working for one of the christian organizations in our lhd and so she would actively talk to people in their homes even in the hospital we're not allowed to do that but she saw you know on a regular basis saw people make commitments so yeah it does happen um i, I yeah again i'm working under authority where it's not really allowed yeah. um next question kind of links to that more for you personally how has seeing people in the last moments of their life and as they cross over impacted how you see god Um, it's a good question because I haven't really thought about it, but I think for me it just makes the life that I have and what other people have even more precious. You know, there's still a profound sadness about somebody dying. It's not the way it's meant to be. We're supposed to live eternally. I mean, we do have an eternal life, but originally the original design was we're supposed to keep going the way we are you know <laughs> and so there is a sadness that we're we're living in a, a fallen world so the, the inherent value is just yeah is amazing do you think that there's um ways that we as christians and in christian communities could approach death differently knowing your medical experience combined with a faith experience do you think that there's a a different way we should be approaching or a healthy way that we should be approaching death? Um, I think it was, I mean, I, I sort of said it in the slides, I think is if I myself, yourself, whatever, are in the dying process is to express that that hope, that joy that you have, and yet be honest. You know, yes, I'm suffering. Bloody hell, you know. I mean, David did it all the time. He you know, <laughs> cursed God, and then he, you know, but he was the man after his heart. I think we just need to be open and honest. We need to, and it says we need to love ourselves before we can love others as well. <laughs> so we need to know that God loves us, who we are, 
and we can love others and just be honest in that process. I don't think we can cover it over and pretend everything's okay. That's never going to, you know, people see through that right away, you know, and yeah, be honest. And today I don't see it. Where are you, God? You got to be able to say it, you know, but you know, I think deep down, deep down, it's always going to be there, but I still, you know, my mind isn't fully renewed yet. I do have doubts at times. I think just I think honesty is probably the best way to say it. Yeah. So we've got a couple of minutes left. Um, if I don't believe in God and His love and creative purpose, and believe each human has a choice, why is it up to each adult to choose what healthcare options um, they have to slow down or speed up death? I mean, in some ways, that's the crux of the whole argument, really, um, is if you believe in the sanctity of life, I mean, we can bring abortion into this argument if we like, um, then, you know, if you believe in that, it's a no-brainer. If, you know, it's just not really an option, but you still have to be honest that you can understand why. But if you don't believe in the sanctity of life and that you believe that an unborn child is, you know, for example, is not a life, then killing them is, it's not actually killing them. It's just getting rid of, rid of a problem. And the same with an adult, you know, who's, who's suffering and dying. If there isn't intrinsic value in that life, then yeah, choosing to die when and where, it's, you know, you're not going to convince that person. You know, and so then, you know, the argument is if we're in a secular society, should we be able to, you know, should that be provided? Um, you know, I still think we have to be open and honest and say, this is wrong, but be open and honest and say, it may happen because of the way society thinks. And so how do we walk through that? You know, show our, you know, our trauma, our sadness, our grief at it. But you still have to, as I said, you can't abandon people, you know. I, you know, we don't right. abandon somebody who's, you know, done this or that. You know, we gather around as a community and try to support. That's, that's all I can. You know. No, I love that, that simple line. Like we do not abandon people. Mm. Like you've said it a few times tonight, and I think it it really sums up um, the Christian response to this mm. conversation. Mm. Final question that we'll um, we'll do tonight. Um, are there people um, who are on your team who are treating people with, who are receiving palliative care who want to be able to, um, yeah, who, who who want to be able to undergo euthanasia? So yeah. So I'll just clarify the question: is that are the, is that patients or family that we're looking after, or is there members on our team who might want to provide euthanasia? Let's go with the the first one. Well, as I said, I experienced it today. Yeah. Um, I think it happens less often than you would think. But, you know, I'd say most weeks there's somebody expressing grief. It's not like, I want it now. And I said, let's sit down and find out what's behind that that question, that grief. And most of the time it's not really a serious request. It's more an expression of what's going on. In terms of people on the team um i would say no as far as i'm aware but it's not for me to say in the sense that i think everybody should have the freedom you know 
to it's not for me to impose my beliefs. I think I can try to create an atmosphere that people want to work in and think the same way, but I, I, I'm the last person to impose on somebody, you know, like people have a freedom to choose. And I think if they want to be involved, I mean, I will take a stance that palliative care is, while I'm still in charge, will not be involved in the implementation process. And I would certainly push for that not to happen in the hospital grounds. But anyway, that's, well, I think, but if somebody on the team wants to be involved in that process, happy for that to happen. I will also ask as a palliative care service that we stay involved, you know, with the patients. Um, yeah, and go on the journey with them. Um, before I get Heather to close for us tonight, is there any closing remarks on this that you would like to say that we haven't really covered in the questions? Not really. I think just basically as I opened it is seek his heart, listen to him, um, and yeah, talk to each other and be honest. Um, I don't think it's ever helped anybody when you say I'm happy when you're not, or you know, <laughs> be honest about how you're feeling, what you're thinking, and you know, we all we're all there. And yeah, it's, and I, you know, the idea that you're going to go and discuss this in your groups and as well is, yeah, love on each other, be open and honest what you say. Um, yeah. Um, maybe as we finish, Adam, we could also have that last um, slide up that Alan had with the questions for small groups if people want to take that um, home with them as well. Um, I'm just going to um, finish up in prayer for the night. Um, and if there's things that have been brought up for you, um, as this inevitably can be a challenging topic, then, um, the pastors here would love to speak with you on that, or I'm sure, um, Alan, if he's got time permitting and Shady, um, as well. Um, and yeah, I'm just going to pray over us as we finish tonight. Lord, we thank you um, that you are always here with us, Holy Spirit, that you're here with us. And I just thank you for um, your presence and for the guidance that you give us, Lord. And I just thank you for um, the way that you've spoken through Alan tonight and for, um, yeah, just your um, heart and love for people, Lord. And I pray that that's something that we can carry um, with us in this um, wrestle, Lord, and as we're... Um, just looking to love those around us and those people experiencing these challenging circumstances and situations, Lord. And I just pray that you continue um, to speak to Alan and to prompt him and to guide him, Lord, as he um, enters into his workplace each day, Lord, that he can feel your presence and that um, people will be able to recognize you and the light that he carries from you um, in his interactions with patients, Lord. And I just really pray that we'll um, continue to, to sit with you in this, Lord, and to understand your love and your heart for us more and your care for us and for all of the people that you've created on this world, Lord. Um, and, yeah, I just pray that you'll be with us as we as we go through and um, into our weeks and days ahead with this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I say one more thing? Absolutely. Oh, sorry. Just as you're praying, I was just thinking, we didn't really address how do we approach people who are pro-euthanasia, so the people who are pushing for it, and um, just, uh, I think the t word that came up is honor them, you know, be, um, try to understand, and, you know, 
you're not going to get anywhere by judging somebody and, you know, and being critical. You know, express what you believe, but love on them and honor them. You know, they're doing it f- what they think is out of good reasons. You know, and find out what those reasons are. Try to understand. Yeah. Um, being harsh and shrill usually doesn't work. I mean, there might be a time and place for it, but I think if we try to understand, um, you know, and honor people, you'll get a lot further. The presenter on the first week um, who spoke, I'm having a complete mental blank of his name at the moment. Um, sorry? Andrew. Andrew, thank you. I remembered Sloan, but not the first name. Thank you. Um, said in his closing remarks the balance between truth and love. Um, and sort of, you know, expressing truth but not forgetting the love associated with it as well and the combination of the two. And I think that really is, you know, a great summation of what you're expressing within that as well. It really depends on how you express the truth. You can cause a lot of damage. Yeah. Particularly if it's done without love. Well, Alan, uh, it's been a genuine privilege to have you. We want to thank you for coming and joining us um, tonight. Could we give Alan a round of applause? And, um, and yeah, we'll email those questions out and we'll be putting the podcast out, um, over the next, uh, next two weeks. Um, so that will be available online as well. So thank you, Alan. And, um, yeah, appreciate it. You can keep, you've got the presentation there. You can hand that out as well.